Welcome to Beyond. We have an incredible guest today, um, Hector Barado, chairman of the Latino Coalition, one of the largest and most effective Latino advocacy groups in the nation. TLC, or Latino, the Latino Coalition, I'll call it TLC, stature in the business community and the political community has grown steadily since Hector took the helm of the organization in 2006. Um, Hector is internationally recognized for his successful business ventures, community leadership, government service, and as a leading voice for Latinos across the country. He's a frequent public speaker, media guest, panelist, and commentator on such shows as CNBC, Fox, uh, NBC, to name a few, um, on business, politics, and the Latino community. He is the author of The Engine of America, a book dedicated to, the, uh, to motivating and inspiring entrepreneurs through real life stories and the winning formulas of successful national business leaders. So Hector, talk a little bit about this book, because as you came on the show, you really had a good preamble as to what it is. Well, it, it, it's my honor to have been able to write this. When I left uh, the government, I was the head of the Small Business Administration. I was approached about writing this book. And uh, I'd never written a book before, but I, I really uh, thought that the challenge was going to be great. So we were able to do it. And really what we're doing here is we're sharing the wisdom of those that have made it, those folks that have been small businesses, struggled, and got to the other side and become successful. And what you find out when you read the book is that so many things that we all deal with, other folks have dealt with as well. We're not the only ones. Sometimes we feel like we're the only ones. So th this was a great uh, experience for me and really enjoyed sharing it with m many other people. So it has important recipes for success. So people have been there, done that, been through the wars. The Engine of America, available on Amazon. Please look it up, find it. Um, it's an incredible book. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I'm really fired up about your mission uh, what you've been focused on for a long time and the impact you're having on so many people's lives. Um, and it is interesting that you're really um, in, involved in the DC politics at the very highest levels of the government with Trump and Pence and others to really shape policy. But before we get into that, I'm always curious, you know, we can see who you are today as a man and how successful you've become, but it started somewhere. So if you can take us back into your early life, your early career, and can you share with us how your journey got started? Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, you know, I was very fortunate because I was born into an entrepreneurial family. My family's originally from the Midwest. I was born and raised in Kansas City, Missouri. And my father was an immigrant to this country in the late 1950s, but he got involved in chambers of commerce. He got involved in politics. He started a lot of businesses. So I really learned what it took to be in business from watching my parents and working in their businesses. So I'm very proud of that uh, background and 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 I take that background where, wherever I go I you know my father used to tell us when we were really young don't ever forget where you come from because the saddest person is the person who forgets where their roots are because they'll never be the person they're pretending to be and they cease being the great person that they already are so I've always taken that with me in any of the careers and uh, jobs that I've had in my life what a, what, what a great example your parents um, really really provided to you but in that journey, as you think back to your time in Kansas and your early life, was there anything you had to learn the hard way? I mean, you had a great mentor in your dad. He's, he's rocking it from the, the, you know, the recipe and the pathway and, and the way you should go. But were there any challenges or struggles in those times? Oh, sure. You know, the businesses that we had as a family were really small businesses. And it really was about survival. And you had to work really, really hard. And, and you, you know, when, when your friends were out on Friday and Saturday night, you know, having a great time. I was at the family restaurant, you know, working double shifts. So you really learn what it takes to be in business, not only to start a business, but grow a business over the long term and the commitment that it takes. You know, a lot of people sometimes will 
will see you know, the, the fun things about being in business, and there are a lot of fun things, but there's a lot that goes into it. And you know, I often tell people it's the hardest job you'll ever love. It's not for everybody, but for those that pursue an entrepreneurial career, uh, the benefits can be incredible. Absolutely. So what would you say is the biggest hurdle you've had to overcome in your life? Well, you know, we all have uh, hurdles as we go through life. Um, you know, w one of the hurdles that I had was when I decided to move to California. I, I didn't know anybody in California. I, I really felt like there was going to be a, a great future here because of how many businesses were here and the trends. And, you know, I, I think of California as the too much place. There's there's too much of everything, you know, good and bad. Right. But um, uh, so that was the challenge, you know, to try to acclimate to a new a place that I've never lived before. Again, I didn't really know anybody. Got into a new industry, a new business. And so you really have to learn things from the ground up. And uh, you know, again, that really tests you because a lot of people will come out to the Golden State and try it out for a little while and they say, ah, this is gonna yeah, be too hard. Toes in the water. And, they, and they go back, you know, but I didn't wanna go back. So uh, I was really glad. I moved here in the late 1980s as well. So you didn't have a family to come to. You were by yourself solo. And then you had to sort of figure out the career and what you're going to get involved in. So in that transition to California, how did you deal with some of those uncertainties? Did you, did you just have the, the can-do positive attitude that your dad instilled in you and the, all the experience you had up to that point? Well, that's a really good question. I, uh, you know, because I moved out here and, you know, didn't really know anybody, I called my dad and I said, Dad, could you introduce me to a few folks? At that time, my father was the CEO of the United States Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. So there were a lot of chambers of commerce in California that were part of his organization. So I got to meet some of those folks and that was really a good networking uh, place for me, um, met a lot of people, those people became my clients as their businesses grew, my business grew, and so it really worked out, but you know, it wasn't easy, and you know, one of the things that you learn when you're an entrepreneur is things take a lot longer than you plan for, than, than in the business plan, so you almost have to double the time that you think it's gonna take to get something done as in terms of what it really is gonna take to get something done. Um, I, I thought I could get on my feet in a couple of years, it took me about five years before I really figured it out. Now, before the Latino Coalition, what were you doing when you first came to California? Yeah, I uh, uh, well, at that time, I was working for Miller Brewing Company. I was an executive with Miller Brewing Company. I had a territory in South Texas. That was really my first job out of college. And I really enjoyed that, and I learned a lot from working in a corporation. But I always had that entrepreneurial bug. I always felt like I needed to do something on my own. And so that's why, in 1987, I decided to move to California. I got into the insurance business. I'd never been in the insurance business before. For, and I really had to learn a new business and develop a new network from scratch. And that's one of the things that took me a while from, and when I moved here. Wow, that's interesting. So since 2006, you've uh, grabbed the helm of the Latino Coalition and you've really seen tremendous growth and progress. Um, what do you attribute the success to? Well, uh, a lot of uh, great partners, a lot of people that believe in the mission of, of Latino Coalition. You know, Latino Coalition is not a chamber of commerce, but we work with a lot of chambers of commerce. Uh, and we really focus on three key issues, economic development, especially as that relates to our small businesses and the jobs that our Hispanic community needs, education and healthcare are the other areas. Those are always perennial uh, issues. And the organization had been around before I took over in 2006, but it was primarily alone in Washington 
Washington, D.C., and one of the goals that I had was that we really needed to take it around the country, turn it into a national network. And over those years, we've been able to build it into 100 plus organizations that we have partnerships with. Those are business organizations, educational organizations, healthcare organizations. We were able to build a large database. We have over 1 million Hispanic businesses in our database. That's about one fourth of all the Hispanic businesses in the United States. We were able to do some very high powered events, not only in Washington DC, but around the country. And we were able to surround small businesses with the tools that they need to succeed. And for us, that's capital, capacity, contracts and strategies on how to cut costs. I call those the four C's. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, it took a while for us to build that out, but it became very scalable and there's a lot of need and interest in those areas. So we continue to build on that formula for success. Did you have that vision when you first came to Latino Coalition in 2006 or did it take a while to get the epiphany to say, you know, like the spoke in the hub? The hub was in DC. The spokes really weren't reaching out and then you create this amazing spoke network to link everybody. Was that obvious when you took over or yeah. did it take a while to get the strategy sort well, of you know, figured yeah, out? One of the benefits that I had is I had been involved in so many organizations before I got to Latino Coalition. I used to run an organization here in California called the Latin Business Association. I was, on, uh, I was the vice chairman of the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce before I went into government. So I had a lot of experience running organizations, being part of boards, et cetera. I had an opportunity to see the things that worked and the things that didn't work. Latino Coalition was a known entity in Washington, but it was really thought of more as a think tank, somebody that, uh, an organization that would weigh in on policy. And I just felt like we needed to be more grassroots and really uh, meet people on the ground where they live and work. And so that was the, uh, that was the, the um, opportunity and the plan that our board decided to pursue when I joined the organization. So as you go through this strategy and implement the strategy, um, was there any risk you guys took as an organization to do this? I mean, it, strategies are always good on paper and in theory, but what, what were some of the risks in making it more grassroots, making it more connected? You know, one of the things that we didn't realize is that when you go to other organizations or other partners, elected officials, et cetera, they didn't really understand what Latino Coalition was. They would say, you know, is it a chamber of commerce? Is it a philanthropic organization? Is it a cause-based organization? And it really wasn't any of those things. And the way that I would describe it is, I used to think of ourselves kind of like an AARP. AARP says they're a national membership organization that advocates on behalf of 50 million constituents called seniors. They also provide those seniors with products and services. And they also obviously advocate and get involved in policy. So we do a little bit of all of that. And that's one of the things that we needed to uh, make people understand because they were trying to understand what our reason for being was. Yes, we'd been around at that point for almost 10 years, but a lot of people hadn't heard of it. And so over the years, what we've done is what I call turn up the volume on that value proposition and make people understand how we can help them, whether you're a small business, whether you're a corporation, whether you're a government entity. So are there a lot of competing Latino coalition type groups out there that cause politicians to lose it in the noise of a bazillion political action committees or 
Was it just a matter of messaging? Well, it's interesting because there are um, uh, other organizations that think of themselves as a Latino coalition. Usually those are local. Usually it might be around a campaign or something of that nature. We've been around for 25 years. And so, um, you know, to your point, it's important to differentiate yourself and also not rest on your laurels. You know, we've had a great 25 years, but we don't get to have another 25 years unless we're really uh, pushing the envelope and bringing new opportunities, new ideas, new values to our members and to our partners. You sound like a startup company. <laughs> That's good. So as I think about what you're doing from a management perspective, you're leading this organization, how do you navigate the dynamic, and I'm using this word dynamic political environment, and maintain the functional coalition you know, objectives and yet meet the needs of the Hispanic business community? Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that we are very clear is that we're not a political organization. Uh, we work with both sides of the aisle. And uh, I, I remember something I heard when I moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, we have no permanent adversaries. We only have permanent interests, right? right? So the Latino coalition has permanent interests, and that is how do we help our community continue to grow, especially the small businesses. And, and by the way, fastest growing segment of small business in the United States is Hispanic business. Uh, Hispanic women are starting businesses five times faster than any other group in the country. We have over four million companies now. Those companies generate $700 billion a year in revenue, and those numbers are doubling every five years. We could have 16 million companies in the next 10 years. So there's a wave of growth, a lot of need, and that's an opportunity for us to continue to grow and scale and provide even more success stories to our members and to our partners. And that's why the politicians sort of lose the aisles, because when you got that kind of economic impact and power and growth, whether you're Democrat, Republican, or independent, they probably don't care about some of the peripheral issues when it relates to the potential for economic impact in their districts and in their states. No doubt about it. Um, you know, they, they, you know all, a lot of elected officials, regardless of where you're at in the country, understand that the Hispanic community is growing everywhere. Uh, my father started the Kansas City Hispanic Chamber and then later the U.S. Hispanic Chamber out of Kansas City, Missouri. Kansas City is not a hotbed of a Hispanic population or, or culture, but my father decided to, to pursue those this many years ago. And now you see those uh, pockets of growth every, almost in every state in the union. And uh, the other thing I, I would say is, is that, you know, my another lesson that my father taught me is, is that it really doesn't matter who's in power. We need to have access, you know. So, you know, my dad would say, sometimes my guy's going to win and my friend's guy's not going to win, but I'll help my friend get access to the relationships I have, and I expect the same thing when his guy wins. And so we kind of pursue that same kind of uh, a strategy. Well, that's a refreshing and healthy perspective in today's clients, or climate, so I appreciate that. Um, the Latino Coalition has hosted very high-impact events that have featured President Trump, uh, Vice President Pence, House Speaker Ryan, uh, to name a few. How committed is the Trump administration, in your opinion, to enhance business opportunities in the Latino community? Yeah, I think one of the things that the Trump administration is very focused on is creating the right environment so that small businesses can grow, regardless of what community that you come from. I know sometimes people will ask me, what special programs do Hispanic businesses need that other businesses may not need? And I say Hispanic businesses need the same thing that every business needs. They need more capital, they need more contracts, they need uh, more training, the same thing any business wants. I would tell you that Hispanic businesses are doing very well right now. I think that um, 
the simplification of the tax code really benefited a lot of small businesses because they pay some of the highest tax rates. You know, an untold story is the rollback of regulation. You know, regulation costs a lot of money for a lot of small businesses that they don't have. Big business can afford to do that, small business can't. Some of the things that we're talking about with regards to trade, this new uh, NAFTA agreement they call USMCA, mm -hmm. that'll benefit a lot of small businesses as well that wanna do more business in Mexico and Canada. And there's other trade agreements that are in the offing. So um, I think that uh, you know Hispanic businesses are optimistic. Uh, the Hispanic unemployment is the lowest ever in the history of since we've been taking the numbers. It's about 4.2%. And as I mentioned to you, uh, we're starting a lot of new businesses. And those businesses wouldn't start if people were afraid of the future. If they were not optimistic, if they thought that the headwinds were in front of them, you know, they would just do nothing. And so we've seen a big change in the last few years, and we hope we can keep it going. No, you said there's a lot to unpack there, right? So. Um, when we think about the economic climate and we think about, you know, the, the growth we're seeing, what we hear as Americans, just listen to our news media, that there's a big divide, there's a lot of animosity, these political parties aren't working together, yet when you talk about the trade deals in particular, I'm very curious about that, USMCA, um, are the politicians cognizant enough and aware enough to do what's right for the Latino community and other small businesses? to pass this trade legislation. And maybe they'd argue, hey, you know, on the margins, we have to negotiate certain things in or out of it. But are they smart enough to do that? Or are they so, um, you know, uh, against the president's agenda, no matter what it is, that they're going to put it on ice until the next election? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a, a, a $64,000 question. The jury's still out on that question. And we're in uh, the year before a major national election. And that's not particular to this administration. You know, I was in several uh, presidential campaigns and we used to refer to this time as the silly season. And what that meant was a lot of crazy stuff's gonna go on, but not, unfortunately not a lot of policy, not a lot of laws are gonna get passed during this time. USMC is a great example of that because all three countries are in agreement. You know, I met with the president of Mexico a couple of months ago. He said it's his top priority. He wants UMCA passed. Uh, the Canadians want the USMCA passed. Obviously, the U.S. Uh, government and this administration wants it passed. So if it's not going to get passed, it purely is the political season that we're in. And that would be a big a disappointment and shame for a lot of small businesses who feel like there's no reason why we shouldn't have this. Uh, this levels the playing field. It creates more opportunities for everybody, big business, small business, these three countries. And we need to do more of this kind of stuff. You know, the rest of the, the world world is, you know, uh, having their own difficulties. There's no reason why this hemisphere can't organize and, and work together in collaboration for the benefit of all of its citizens. Yeah, I think it also has some uh, impact on the China negotiations, right? The China trade deal, because they're looking at the tea leaves and reading what's happening within the politics of the U.S. And I think one can affect the other. So this brings me to the next question. You wrote a really interesting article for the Wall Street Journal. And you talked about the, uh, the, the trade war with China right now and the tough stance that, that Trump has taken. And in essence, he's a businessman and he kind of started his own business and grew it. And you look at corporate America, they're risk averse. They like the status quo and don't rock the boat. Whereas small business entrepreneurs are used to uncertainty, are used to a lot of change. And so the idea is, um, as, we, as we look at this, you point out the small business commuting is watching Trump. Uh, with, with admiration as opposed to what, what the heck's he doing? But no, we, we like what he's doing. 
And then you made the parallel of a big business to a political establishment. So, you know, here you got Trump going into D.C. to sort of rock the establishment. And the establishment's very staid, status quo, don't change. Um, wh why, why does the small business community cheer the president on? Because small businesses have to take risk every single day because small businesses oftentimes are one bad quarter, one bad sale of being in business or not being in business because small businesses are the last to get paid. They want to take care of their employees. They want to keep investing back into their businesses. And they look at large corporations and they look at government leaders and they say, they don't get me. They don't understand what I have to do every day to survive. And you know, I'm not asking for all kinds of bailouts. You know, I just want to hand up. I just want a level playing field. And they feel that the president is fighting for them. Uh, and they relate to that. That doesn't mean that sometimes they don't get nervous about things that are said or done, and they don't worry about what might happen if these, these things don't occur. But they, but they give the president a lot of credit for at least trying to do that. And you know, we have a lot of evidence that what we've been doing for the last 20 years has not been working. I wrote in that article that I went to China when I was in government, uh, high-level delegation, the President's Export Council, Secretary of Commerce was on that trip, and many Fortune 500 company executives, and we were complaining about the same things that we're complaining about right now. The trade imbalance, the currency manipulation, the intellectual property theft, and on and on. And the Chinese basically said, look, you're not our only customer. I'm sorry that you're not happy, but you know, we're going to do our own thing. And I think President Trump, who knows the Chinese, has worked with the Chinese in his own business, said, we're not going to do that anymore. And we're going to have to do something drastic, and we're going to have to change the rules of the game. And if we don't do it now, we will never be able to do it. And so I think a lot of folks are rooting for the president. They hope that it, that it works. Uh, but we can't go back to the way things were. That's not in our best interest as a country. It's one of the reasons that we've lost so many jobs is because the, there is not a level playing field uh, when we're negotiating with the second largest economy, which will be the largest economy in the world in, in our lifetime. Right, right. And you know, not only is it economic imperative, but it's a national security imperative to make Absolutely. sure we get this right, because yes. both are, uh, are linked. You mentioned another article that Hispanic Americans are on the rise in every way and politicians must take note. What do you mean by that? Well, I, you know, I think sometimes we feel that uh, politicians, both sides, patronize to our community. And, you know, usually they ignore us all year, except when it gets close to an election and then they'll, they'll have a party and they may have some mariachi music and some margaritas or something and they, they hope that, you know, that'll be enough. Well, that's not enough. Uh, and again, we don't, we don't want to be patronized to. We want to be treated uh, respectfully for the things that we contribute to this economy. Uh, purchasing power in the uh, Hispanic community now is approaching $2 trillion. Uh, uh, it's the uh, largest minority in the United States. It'll be 25% of the U.S. population in the next 20 to 25 years. A million Hispanics turn 18 every single year. Those are voters. So, you know, we contribute a lot to the economy. We contribute a lot to small business growth. Uh, we contribute a lot to the jobs that our country needs. Uh, we contribute a lot of votes across the country. And so we just want to be uh, treated fairly. We don't expect any special programs or any uh, you know, special treatment, but we don't want to be ignored and, and we don't want to be pushed aside or patronized, especially right before an election. Now, it makes a lot of sense as I look at it, and this is irrespective of party, but you know, as I'm listening to one side of the debate, it's like more, more benefits, more giveaways, 
And now you're talking about businesses that are growing, decreased regulation, uh, they need more money to expand the business. Um, I, I would imagine this isn't lost on the Latino business community, that there's clearly one party that has a different perspective than the other. How does that play out? Because you think if I'm a politician and I'm doing focus groups and I'm trying to figure out what's important to people, um, I think I would be really thoughtful about they need this kind of arrangement for their business to be successful. And the idea that you would want to re-regulate or increase the taxes and potentially halt or stop growth altogether, how does that factor into the sort of the uh, the strategy of the politicians, you know, for 2020? Yeah, unfortunately, very few politicians, I, I think, have a, a good uh, approach to it. I think, unfortunately, one party thinks that the only thing we care about is immigration, uh, which is important, but it's not our most important issue. It's probably not even the top five issue. You gotta remember that 90, 95% of Hispanics that are here are uh, citizens or legal residents. Many were born here, been here for generations. Um, another party, the other party, uh, which is my party, oftentimes is afraid to approach the Hispanic community because they think Hispanics are gonna be hostile towards them. What they need to understand is the Hispanic community, like any other community, is not monolithic. We don't all think the same. We don't all want the same things. Uh, so I think that both parties need to kind of, you know, recalibrate the way that they approach our community and, and know some of the things that we just talked about. We care about our businesses. Uh, we care about jobs. We care about health care. Uh, we care about education for our youth. Those are the most important things to us. And if any of the two parties can really focus in on that and make a good case, I would say to you that Hispanics may be overwhelmingly registered on one side of, of the political aisle, but they don't always vote that way. I think of them more, much more as independent voters. It, it depends. It depends on what the issue is and who the candidate is. I worked for a president, George W. Bush, who got 44% of the Hispanic vote on his reelection campaign. Uh, that's all time high. Mm. Um, and no, no Republican has ever come close to it since then. But that, I think, is emblematic of the fact that Hispanics are going to make a decision what they think is the best for their family and their pocketbook. And right now, they have questions on both parties. Yeah, and they should, as they should, right? Because I think both parties have uh, fumbled the ball. So we, we hear about this whole thing, and we, we talked about this when we met earlier, about the wall. And you know, to me, that's sort of a political football, and it's good theater, and it's limbic rich because it's emotional, and it's an image, and people can react to it and, and maybe thoughtful and not so thoughtful ways. But as I, I listen to what you were telling me uh, earlier, you know, if you really drive economics and you really drive opportunity in Mexico, and I'm not trying to be Pollyannic, I understand they have their problems, but if you really drive education opportunity across the board, and maybe the USMCA will help that, it seems to me, why would people leave if they can go to school, raise their kids, have an increased standard of living? It seems to me that that's what they would want, right? And I'm not saying get rid of countries and board, I, I'm just saying that it's possible, it's doable. Look, Trump said to the president of Mexico, hey, you, you got to start working on this, this flow of, of people across the border. And they're doing it, you know, according to what I read today, like the best ever. Right. But it seems to me if we were, were really to help with economic development zones and education and really investing on that side, I got to imagine a lot of people like that side if there's opportunity. There's no doubt about it. Um, there's no I'm not met. Um, any Hispanic in any of the Latin American countries 
uh, that I've been at that wake up one day and say, gosh, I want to walk 2,000 miles to the United States and start a new life in the United States. They leave because they have to. Uh, they leave because of uh, security issues. They leave because of economic issues. They don't want to leave. And I agree with you 100%. If, if we help these countries develop their own economies, that not only benefits us, it benefits them. And that's a smarter strategy and a much better way, I think, of investing our money. Oftentimes, as you know, we invest trillions of dollars in other parts of the world that really have nothing to do with our economy. They don't really help us at all. All. I, I'd like to see more of that money uh, invested in Latin America. And I will tell you that it is happening in Mexico and other parts of Latin America. Mexico is already a top 15 economy in the world. Uh, it will be a top 10 economy in the world in the next five to 10 years. Um, Mexico has a lot. It has a lot of natural resources. It has two coastlines. It has an educated workforce. Um, it has all of the, uh, the, the tools that it needs to succeed. Uh, they're trying to get their arms around creating that environment for those small businesses in those countries. I helped with some of that when I was in government with the transfer of best practices. So these things are going to happen. And with regards to security, yes, it's this, this whole issue has become politicized. And the issue is more important than ever, especially after what we've experienced since 2001. Uh, every country in the world, uh, job number one is to provide security for your people and to enforce your borders. So, you know, the United States should not be treated or thought of differently. We should do what every other country in the world does. And so, um, you know, it's ironic to me that there are many people that are complaining about security at the border that voted for the same security in different administrations. Right. And so um, you have to sit there and scratch your head and say, you know, what, what has changed other than the occupant of the White House? Right. That's, that's a good point. What is the biggest issue for the Latina community coming into the 2020 uh, elections? Well, the, uh, you know, the economy is always the top uh, issue. And you know, right now, they're starting, they're, they're starting to feel optimistic about the future, and they just want it, to keep it going. Not every uh, you know, Hispanic is going to start a business, but we start a lot of them. Uh, but we also want to make sure that we have uh, uh, good tracks for the jobs that we need, the jobs in the future. Uh, you know, remember, there are 60 million Hispanics in the United States, 60 million. And unemployment right now is the lowest that it's ever been. It's 4.2%. So they want to make sure that that keeps going. They get a little nervous when folks say, let's go back to the way we were doing it in, in the, the last eight years because it wasn't so great for them in the last eight years. And they also don't trust you know, a big, you know, huge, unwieldy governments because oftentimes their ancestors or they came from those kind of governments and they realize that they don't always work for the people. Right. You know. Um, so th those are some of the things they're going to be listening for. And uh, so the economy, number one. And then I would say to you, uh, healthcare probably number two. You know, about a one third of Hispanics are still underinsured or have no insurance at all. And remember, they were promised in the previous administration that all that was going to be taken care of for them. Well, it's not. About a third of Hispanics are still struggling with healthcare, so that's a big issue. And then education. You know, with a, a very young population, want to make sure that our kids are able to go to good schools, not schools that are dangerous or not teaching their kids. They want options. They want freedom. 
to be able to choose where their kids go. Not every uh, kid is going to want to go to college, so they also need technical skills, trades, and uh, other opportunities in the future. So they're going to be listening very intently to the candidates and hear what their prescriptions for those kinds of opportunities for the community is going to be going forward. Well said. Well, it's very succinctly said. Thank you. Let me switch gears here um, with just your vast background and the number of people you've come across. What are one or two pearls of wisdom that you could offer the audience that if they took your advice, whether it's personal or professional, um, they'd be really greatly benefited by that? You know, um, I think everybody has a different you know, path that they take. Um, I think to be really clear about what you want in your life and in your career is really important. The sooner that you can get clarity around that, the better, because then you can put the blinders on and just pursue that. Um, you know, different people uh, value different things and have different uh, uh, definitions of success. I, I think it's very important to do work that you're passionate about and that you like to do. Sometimes people have different opinions of that. Sometimes people say, you know, pursue a career and then learn how to be passionate about it. Some people say, just be passionate and it doesn't matter what career that you pursue. I, I think it's a combination of, of both things. I think right. you, you need to be some planning and calculation around that. Uh, and then, you know, pay attention to people that have uh, been successful before you and try to emulate them the best that you can. Uh, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of folks that have been there before you. And, and one thing that I've learned is there are many ways to be successful. And that's a good thing because then you can really architect what makes sense for you and do something that, you know, is fulfilling to you and that you're also proud of. You know, you don't want to be doing things that, you know, when you look back in your career and say, you know, should I have spent all my career doing that work because you know, it really wasn't that fulfilling to me. Yeah. No, that's sage advice. That's really important because a lot of people get stuck in those careers because they're, you know, as I always said, the fruit's out on the on the limb of a tree, right? Sometimes to go out there is kind of risky, but sometimes that risk could be your greatest joy and, and pleasure in life uh, into the unknown. Who's that person that's had the most influence on your life? Well, uh, that's easy for me. It's my parents, you know, my, my mother and father. I, I have so much admiration and respect for them because, uh, you know, my father used to tell me, he said, look, I came here in the late... Uh, 50s and and he says I didn't know anybody I didn't have any money I didn't speak the language I had no power and I was able to figure it out and scratch a, a life for myself and you you've had a lot more opportunities than I've had so I expect you will be able to even do more uh, my mother was another great role model as my father was traveling around the world you know uh, conquering new new worlds my mother was back running the businesses my dad liked to start businesses but my mom ran those businesses she worked really hard and she really taught us the value of work ethic and honesty and you know taking care of people uh, being your word, all of those things, which I think are critically important. So I, I have a combination of both of my parents in me, and I'm very proud of that. And I'm trying to convey some of those pearls of wisdom to my children, who I think are future entrepreneurs. Right. If you can go back in time and give yourself advice, what would it be? Um, that's a great question. I, I, I think it's probably not to be so hard on yourself. I mean, I think that I, you know, I was uh, very intense and probably didn't, uh, you know, uh, 
have as much fun or you know explore things or spend enough time with family and friends because I was just so laser focused on being successful and I would just tell myself you know it's all going to work out you know you don't know exactly how it's going to work out and that's okay but you're doing the right things and as long as you keep working hard you know I, I like to say the harder I work the luckier I get that's you know? right. so um, that I think probably that, that's the advice I would give myself as a young person. That's great advice. Is there anything we haven't covered you'd like to share with the audience? Um, I think that uh, you know we're at a, a great time in our country. It's a kind of a, 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 a crossroads, if you will. But I'm optimistic about the future. You know, sometimes we get bogged down with you know the political rhetoric. But you know, our country is so unique. Uh, the rest of the world would love to emulate what we've been able to do here, and it's the people. It's our way of life, it's our culture, it's our laws and constitution, it's our work ethic, it's our uh, ability to be able to take risks, which really makes us the envy of the world. I've had many uh, leaders of countries when I was in government and outside of government, you know, ask me, you know, how does the United States do this? How do you build this great middle class that fuels your economy? And then I tell them what we do, which is not, they're not secrets, they're some of the things we just talked about. And they would say to me, well, we would never be able to do that. You know, our government wouldn't let us do that. Our people would never do that. You know, we think that you guys are crazy for doing the things that you do. And so uh, I'm proud of that. You know, I'm so grateful that I was born in this country and was born into the family that I was born into because it has given me so much that I never thought was possible when I was growing up as a little kid in Kansas City, Missouri. Man, and you're giving it back in spades. That's awesome. Where can they learn more about you and the Latino Coalition? Sure. Well, please visit us on our website, thelatinocoalition.com, and attend one of our events. You know, we have events in Washington, D.C., and we partner with other organizations. And also, if you're in business and interested in getting business from the government or corporate America, visit our online procurement portal, which we call tlcmatchpoint.com. You get a lot of great information and we'll help you meet some folks that you can do business with. And you don't have to be Hispanic to be part of Latino Coalition or to take advantage of the tlcmatchpoint.com portal. Fantastic. Well, you're, you're an amazing leader. Um, your journey's inspirational. I love your passion. I love your perspective on what it means to be an American and, and enjoy the success. Thanks for coming on Beyond. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate you. Yeah. That's it from Beyond. Remember, you can find us on YouTube at Beyond Ben Bobo and on our website, beyondbenbobo.com. Until next time, remember, becoming is better than being. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. It was awesome.